Welcome to the Heretex Podcast. You can get us at heretex.io or send us email at feedback at heretex.io. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the show and whether perhaps you'd like to join us for a chat yourself. It's time to talk about change. Funny enough, we're actually having this episode. It's the, the wonderful 4th of July here in uh, New York City. And uh, my, my, my counterpart is in a place where they don't celebrate 4th of July for whatever reason. And our wonderful guest, Sean Norris, over at Pivotal, is actually in Singapore right now. So uh, once again, we, we've gone global. And, and Justin, why are you not celebrating 4th of July? I think this is you know, rather, rather depressing and, and sad. Well, being a British citizen, we celebrate 4th of July as we do celebrate 4th of July. We, we celebrate that time when we gave America back. Uh, so, <laughs> that, slightly that different is, celebration. <laughs> very gracious of you for, uh, for giving us this, this wonderful country. <laughs> yeah, we think so. I'd also like everyone to note that, Mark, you seem to travel and follow the holiday. Uh, I, I try. Which to. I think is, is clever. Yeah, I think that's pretty smart. I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, highly patriotic here. Uh, on the, uh, <laughs> okay. And, and this, uh, this podcast is sponsored by the uh, U.S. government. Thank you. Um, <laughs> So moving on from a you know, rather caustic subject such as uh, patriotism and holidays and such, uh, I wanted to introduce Sean Norris, a good friend of mine, uh, someone that I think we, we've had plenty of conversations in the past around things like uh, engineering culture, organizational structures, DevOps, uh, you name it, and wanted to, for one, give you an opportunity, Sean, to introduce yourself uh, to our uh, esteemed audience, and then I think we want to jump into I think what is a rather interesting topic around metrics and driving from legacy to cloud. So, Sean, why don't you uh, take it away? Hey, thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks, Justin. Um, it, I think we're playing a game of musical chairs here geographically because I grew up in a small town about two hours uh, east from Toronto, where Justin is. So, you know, my accent wow. does have that. Canadian tinge to it. So yeah, I, I'm uh, almost opposite side of the world at the moment, but uh, yeah, great to be here and appreciate the invite. Um, yeah, I'm the field CIO covering Asia Pacific and Japan for Pivotal. Um, that means I, it's not, a, it's not a traditional CIO role. It's really a customer facing kind of uh, taking Pivotal out to customers type CIO role. And so I spend probably 80% of my time out with customers and we're really in the helping customers transform and build better software business. And so I, I spend a lot of my time in topics around, you know, how do you do that? It's a, it's a really interesting role. I've actually started to see that in a lot of other organizations as well, uh, being able to come in you know, at, a, at a more, I wouldn't necessarily call it a higher level, but you know, really being able to go in and talk about pretty impactful topics and helping organizations to start to rethink how they evaluate their, their infrastructures and, and the technologies that they're leveraging as they are making this, let's be honest, I mean, I think every company out there is making this transition from you know, a lot of the legacy ways of doing things into more modern, um, more uh, agile or just more agility and trying to get to a place where they can actually deliver uh, products and solutions faster to customers. 
And yeah, I mean, there's there, there's something. Sorry, Mark. I I just um, something just occurred to me, which is um, I'd love your your thoughts on it, Sean. The the idea of selling software in in the old days, whenever that was, um, you know, when Mark was still young, um, the the, that, the the software sale was essentially a demonstration of functionality. And people would buy into the proposition that that functionality would help them. But now, the software sale, particularly in the world that you're in, is different because the organization actually needs to change in a variety of ways in order to take advantage of the capabilities of the software. So if you if you're using the same old you know waterfall approach and you know separation of tests and application development and management and operations, et cetera, you're not going to get all the great benefits that you get from your pads. And so I'm just interested in how much of your time is spent helping an organization change so that they can adopt your software versus talking about software. And, and, just, for, and just for clarification, I do feel personally attacked, uh, Justin. Yes, I, I still do have a paper <laughs> Rolodex right here on my desk in front of me, uh, but I will not accept being called uh, ancient. All right, uh, Sean, please. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the idea of selling software in this day and age? Well, you know, public service advisory, um, I don't want this to turn into like a, a vendor pitch for half an hour because, you know, no one wants to hear that. Um, at the same time, you know, people look at Pivotal and go, oh, yeah, they sell a platform as a service, they sell some data products, you know, it's all pretty good software. But, uh, you know, internally, we have a lot of discussions about it that really, if, if you, Almost all of our, you know, large important customers are in the position where they've already made that decision that they need to transform, and so that that seems to be the fulcrum of the the sell no sell type decision that we see customers coming and having a relationship with us is that they really want um, someone to help them go faster in that, you know. I worked for one of the large cloud providers in the past, and it doesn't really matter which it is, because I think this probably applies to all, all three of the big three, um, that they won't come in and tell you how they build software. If you go to Amazon or Google or Microsoft and say, hey, I want to come and sit in your office and send my dev team or send a squad of developers in to sit and maybe pair program and code with you for three months and we co-create some software, they'll, they'll laugh at you and go, no, sorry, that's our secret sauce. You can't do it. I mean, I'm glossing things over here and making a long story short, but that that's kind of what we've done is we've monetized that. Like, hey, we've learned a whole lot over kind of 30 years of running Pivotal Labs. We, we think we've learned some stuff or we've at least developed a strong opinion on one of the ways that you can build really good software fast. And, and you know, well testable. And then once we did that, we built some software to help kind of get it in production and to run it more easily. And so that's kind of the sequence I see is that if if you don't need to go faster and you don't need to reduce your operations burden, then you know I, I'm not sure there's much of a value of coming and buying some software from us. So you know, and it's interesting we talk about this transition that's happening in in many organizations, and. Yeah, I've often run into, you know, from my standpoint, this notion that we're just going to buy a bunch of tools or we'll get some consultants or we're just going to bring in a lot of things to help us along in this, this journey. 
But ultimately, I think they often what often gets glossed over is some of the the real key reasons as to why you're transitioning and, and the things you need to actually have in place before things like tools or people or all these other things that are brought into the conversation really matter. And that's why I thought it was interesting to you know, dig into you know, what it is about getting an organization ready to be able to transform themselves. And what are some of the foundational things they really need to start thinking about? And so I'd really like kind of to hear your thoughts on what are things that large organizations really need to have in place beforehand? What are things they should be trying to measure or understand so they can start to see that there's value being generated in all of the activity that they're doing during their transformation? Well, you guys suggested this could be lighthearted. So this is meant in a lighthearted way, but I think we're going to need a rise to you know c level and senior positions in large enterprises of folks who actually understand the technology deeply and understand how it works frankly um you know it seems that technology is the last bastion where you can come with an mba and lots of general manager experience and then lead a very technical direction and so what tends to happen is that the folks who are you know on the front lines, as it were, at the coal face, actually trying to write code, actually trying to run systems in production. They, they lose faith because they look a couple layers up and they think these people actually don't know what they're doing. And I'm paraphrasing here, and this obviously doesn't apply to all organizations, but you know, I, I would say you know, if, if you want a, a practical thing, and I kind of mean this for leaders in organizations, like it's never been easier or cheaper or information to learn enough to understand your business at a very deep level, it's never been easier. So you should go do it. And if you're not doing it, you should step aside and let somebody else who who wants to do that come in and, and, and lead your people faster and better. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. You this, Just saying that as a kind of a overall thrust of what what's going on, because we have a lot of technology decisions that seem to be being made by business-oriented people that don't have much of an understanding of how software is actually created. You know, it's, it's engineering yeah. that's business-driven as and well as engineering-driven. Yeah, 100%. Like, let me be a little more you know, serious about it for a moment, give you a couple of specific examples. Like, even back in the 60s and 70s with the Toyota manufacturing system, Toyota's philosophy, they expressed it as managers should be involved enough in the production process that they should have to wash their hands at least twice a day. You know, this and on cord idea that, you know, if you ran into a problem on the production line, any worker could pull the cord, they would be celebrated for stopping production and having kind of a swarm approach of leadership come down and help them solve the problem in real time. I don't see a lot of that going on except in kind of, you know, small pockets here and there, but um, you know, one of the uh, you know one of the stories I'll I'll tell in a bit. Um, you know I did work at Amazon for a little while, and uh, Jeff Bezos tells a great story of how when the company was really small, when it was Christmas and New Year, everyone in the company had to kind of stop doing their day job and go and pack boxes in the warehouse, and because it was such a rush, they didn't have the you know. Uh, variable workforce stuff they have going on now. And so really everybody kind of took the whole month of December, no one took any leave and everybody packed boxes. 
But after a couple of years, the company scaled beyond that and they didn't really need to do that anymore. And people started to complain to Jeff and say, hey, I don't feel kind of as connected to what's going on as I used to when I used to spend December packing boxes. And so they started this thing called Customer Connect, where now if you're in a senior leadership role in the company, you're expected to do a couple days either answering calls on a call center uh, with, with an agent or you know, packing boxes in a fulfillment center. So, and that's to kind of recreate that experience of you know, walking the production line, understanding the, the fine-grained details of the business at a low and you know, necessary level. And I think that's a, a specific thing that really anybody, whatever your level or wherever, whatever your organization is, if you've been glossing over things and going, oh, I don't need to know the deep details of that, maybe you do, you know, especially if it's in your, your area of responsibility. Yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. Um, it really is, I think, indicating a, a sea change. I think you're right. There's a sea change in, in how uh, technology is, is seen as a function as opposed to the identity of a company. So, in, you know, in the past, technology was a support function. And I think now increasingly it's the core business in, in some profound way. Um, and, and you're right, you need to know your business, right? But the interesting right. question that, 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 that I ask is, it, is it easier to teach a good manager about technology or is it easier to teach a good technologist to be a good manager? Well, that's a, that's a good one. I haven't thought about that. Um, I think either are possible, you know, great, great leaders are, are hard to copy. And there's some aspects I think that you're born with and some you can learn. So I, I've seen great leaders in the past that I've had the opportunity to work for who came in without much of a technical background. And because they realized they needed to know, they rolled up their sleeves and, and dove in. Um, I've also seen people like myself who kind of got dropped in having been a, you know, a fairly decent individual contributor technologist and kind of dropped in and went, oh, you can manage some people now. And then I did a really bad job of it for a few years because uh, I, I think that the art and practice of leading people is orders of magnitude more difficult than kind of making technology decisions, from, at least from my experience. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And I think that, that that is one of the real issues I think many large companies are going through right now, where as we uh, try and attract and build and nurture great technical talent to build the core of our business, which is based on technology, it is, in, it is easier to get people with uh, technological experience than it is to get technologists who want to be technologists and leaders of people. Yeah, and, um, I, and I think that's a really inter interesting uh, segue into kind of what we had as our nominal topic around these kind of metrics that denote what your uh, performance is like as a technology organization. Uh, and, you know, this none of this is my work. I'm just kind of uh, amplifying what came out of uh, Nicole Forsgren and Jess Humble and Gene Kim's uh, Accelerate book and the State of DevOps report they've run for the last five years. But the punchline of that is really cool, which is that if you perform better as a technology organization, 
and they've got four metrics they use and a bunch of supporting ones. But if, if you're an elite performer, not only does your business make more money and is more profitable, but people are much more likely to uh, rate you as a great place to work and recommend working there to others as a great place to work, you know, higher ENPS scores and, and the like. So that like, if, if you, if you want to be better at technology and, you know, I, I think there's probably a few companies out there still sitting saying, oh, well, we're fine where we are, but the other 98% are like, yes, we need to be better at technology because our whole business revolves around it. Then there's actually data out there in plain sight that is kind of freely available with the roadmap. I just think it's so radical and such a change from the status quo that people are reluctant to kind of take the reins up and go for it. Yeah, it's and it, I think from there, it, it's what I thought was really interesting from some of the, that research uh, that was done to be able to publish the Accelerate book. What I think was interesting was, let, let's get out of just pure technology speak for a second. And let's start to connect the outcomes of the things we do from a technology perspective to improve the way that we deliver software in a way that business leaders can now understand. Because yeah, I think following on from you know, the conversation about you know, technologists and leaders and you know, business taking technology seriously as opposed to just a support function, if technology truly is the driver for developing more innovation, remaining competitive in the marketplace, then it stands to reason that you know, business leaders, including the CEO, should have an understanding of, well, what does it mean to be a te better technology organization? And then now have an appreciation of what some of the challenges and opportunities are in investing in technology, not treating it as a support function, but treating it as as a necessary function, just as it's necessary to understand balance sheets, to understand your hiring practices, your product practices, uh, engineering is a key aspect for being an excellent organization. I, I think you've kind of nailed it, is that, you know, if I'm a CFO, there are generally accepted accounting principles and an army of, uh, you know, credentialed, qualified folks who will come in and quickly spot if I'm not kind of playing by the rules as it were, or, you know, using best practices. And that goes for other professional disciplines as well. If I'm a, if I'm a mechanical engineer, you know, I, I have to have specific credentials. I, I, you know, my work's going to get peer reviewed, especially if I'm doing any research and um, in technology for too long, it's just been kind of too loose, I think. And so it, it, it's going to be really interesting to see if this, if these high level ways of consistently measuring organizations actually catches on. I, I think it's still really early to see whether it will. It, it's also interesting that like a, a number of myths are being exploded. Like the, the Accelerate book suggests you can have throughput and stability at the same time, which is, you know, this is this podcast is called Heretics. That's completely heretical to anyone of the, of the ITIL religion, you know, but the whole change management industrial complex exists because of the, the deeply held belief that changes are risky and you should control and manage them and really reduce and limit them at all costs to protect your business. And really now it's, if you can't change 
fast enough to drive your business forward and release new features to delight your customers faster than your competitors do, then that's holding back your business. So it's it's a really interesting change to see that. And, and the research says that if you're an elite performer, that you can both go far faster and be far safer, have better uptime, recover from failure faster, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's, that's, uh, that idea of velocity, Sean, is really important when we when we start to think about risk and, and security risk in particular, because the reality is, is in many of the mature industries, uh, feature delivery velocity is actually not necessarily that important in, in a fairly in, in a in, in a fairly well developed market um, you know people in the supply chain aren't competing necessarily on, on 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 some of these new features that are delivered but what they are expecting is to continually be doing business on a safe platform that is safe from hackers and insider threats and things like that and in that model with the threat surface being so broad and so many different threats being out there, you literally have to be um, pushing updates to your security policies, both at the application and at the infrastructure level, more or less continuously. And so even yeah. if the velocity of feature development is not necessarily a, a key differentiator for you, certainly the security policy push means that if you're still in the cadence of dropping software, dropping updates every two months, you just won't be safe. And that is, well, that is this, literally this, the basis yeah, of the business. 100% agree. Um, James Waters, who's you know one of our, well, he's our senior vice president of strategy at Pivotal and someone you should try and get on the podcast. Um, he, he likes I, to talk I, about, he, he likes to talk about the value line. James many times. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he, I, I've argued with him in the past as a customer of his too. So, um, but uh, nonetheless, on this thing, I agree with him 100%, which is he, he talks a lot about the value line, which is there's, there's an imaginary line in your technology organization and work done above that line is things your customers would care about and would, would do more business with you because you're working on, on that side of the line. Whereas stuff below the line is important, but invisible to customers. So, you know, if you're if you're in financial services building a new mobile banking app that would be above the line you know it's it's not a stretch that you do a really good job of that and you yeah. outflank your competitors and, and you deliver such an amazing experience there that's being updated all the time and has new stuff coming that customers go wow i'm gonna i'm gonna do more business with you because of this uh, patching your servers is well below the line and and some people think yeah. oh well below the line doesn't matter i don't have to worry about it well absolutely it's super important like you won't get one extra customer because of how well you patch your servers, but you will certainly lose them all if you do it badly. The strategy play is that above the line, try and make your or have your develop make your environment such that your developers can spend as much time as possible there. And everything below the line, invest everything you can afford and then a bit into automation so that you don't have to have that scaling with people. Um, and so you know, having a continuous delivery pipeline to be able to patch your servers and, and be able to apply updates in real time and test them. And, you know, that that's now going to be like mandatory equipment for large enterprises soon. Whereas today, in a lot of places, it's still done by an army of people and meetings and late night conference calls. Yeah, I mean, the whole cycle of uh, you know, doing updates and upgrades and in large organizations, and particularly with many of the banks I work with, 
Uh, I mean, it, it looks scary just how many people are involved still. And, you know, to your point, I think earlier, that are still involved in key decision-making around code releases that by people that have no concept or understanding what app code actually does. So it's, it's amazing that we're, we're still, we're still stuck in this process where there's a lot of manual work that's happening. Uh, well, that, I think that, that was one of my favorite bits out of Accelerate is that change management boards are negatively correlated with software delivery performance. So the more change management you've got, <laughs> yeah. chances are the worse you are at delivering software. Yeah. Everybody should kind of let that sink in for a bit. Like, if that doesn't wake you up and realize that the ITIL industrial complex has, it's actually been wrong all along. It's just now more obvious because there's more pressure to go faster. It was never a great system. It sucked quite badly all along. But now it's the, there's a bright light being shone on it because it's it, it's it's at the end of its life. It needs to be retired. Yeah, I I, I think ITIL is negatively correlated to software delivery in just such a massive way, and it's only taken us what like two decades to actually realize that all the massive load of process that we put on top of people has not actually solved any significant issues in creating better software or managing systems better. Uh, and to that point, uh, you know, we, you know, we've been talking about the metrics around how we can actually elevate ourselves or get out of this morass. What are the four metrics? They're, they're fairly straightforward. There, there's two for throughput or velocity and two for stability. The, the throughput ones are around your end-to-end -end pipeline time. Like how long does it take something to go from development to production essentially? And then your frequency, how often do you do that? So, you know, that, that gives you a good idea of how fast you're moving. You know, uh, how, how long does it take me to get an idea into production and how, how often do I do that? And then the stability ones are um, more interesting to operations people, but this is of all those changes I push to production, how many of them break something? Like what's my change failure rate? And then in what's hopefully the rare occurrence when it does break, how fast do I recover it? Now, I know there's, you know, DevOps guys with a lot more cred than me, like John Allspaw, who will say, hey, MTTR is not a great metric. I don't know where I sit on that. It's probably a great or a good proxy, at least to start looking at, you know, what your agility from an operations point of view is like um, in terms of how fast you can recover service when it breaks. Because all systems break eventually. Yeah, no, I've yeah. read yes, all spas views. Yeah, <laughs> they all break, and I've I've read all spas views on MTTR and and such. Uh, you know, I'm kind of on the fence, but you know, clearly, I think those four metrics are a good starting point for organizations to start to rationalize how they're doing technology, how they're really operationalizing the things that they're doing. But I also have seen... I have a controversial question. So, oh, sorry, okay. on that topic. I have a controversial question. So, so here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is back in the good old days um, when Mark's Rolodex was new um, and we had all of these practices and everything around keeping systems stable. Um, the people who knew how to do it and are really, really good at it, they did it. And then we thought to ourselves, well, how do we scale this? Because like not a lot of people do it. But what we're going to do is we're going to formalize it into this thing called ITIL. And ITIL has had the impact that we have all spoken about. But it's essentially a formalization of some 
practiced that was used. Now we're beginning to see this in other areas. We're beginning to see, for instance, the formalization for an organization of agile through things like the SAFE framework, right? And we're beginning to see the formalization of, you know, other things coming out of DevOps, for instance, you know, with you know, DevOps certifications and DevOps institutes and all sorts of things. And so my question is, how do we avoid in this, in this next step in our evolution, how do we avoid creating the same kind of over-formalization that happened to ITIL with the technology practices that we know and love today? You know, well, I, I think <laughs> you almost need to back test your, your tech strategy against like Gene Kim's three ways, if you like. You know, if, if you kind of go back to first principles of DevOps and say, what's it really all about? And, you know, if, if you like, like work should only flow in one direction and you should make sure it's good before it goes on to another station and there should be as few stations as possible. And then you should, you know, shorten the feedback loops and then you should experiment to find your way to the next thing. Like that, those are good primitives. And I don't hear people talking about them very often. I, I get the sense that what happens is it's way easier to go to a conference, hear some buzzwords, think, oh, that's kind of cool. I can, I can kind of keep my job for a while longer if I go back and rebrand to be the DevOps kind of guy. And I just take my systems administrators or my operators and I rename it and put DevOps in everyone's title and, and nothing really changes. Um, right. You know, you know, are you still working in cross-functional silos where you hand work off 13 ways to get anything done? How many different teams have to call into an incident bridge when your critical mission critical applications go down? That's a good way of kind of gauging yourself. If, you know, in one of the organizations I worked for not too long ago, you had to have 13 different teams, all with different leaders and, uh, you know, different escalation paths. And you needed 13 different teams on a, on a P1 incident for, for a typical mission critical system. Yeah, I, I think you've absolutely, I, I think you've nailed it. I mean, for me, the those yeah. basic primitives, I, I think, are more, um, and, and you know, what one takeaway from this podcast is everyone should read Accelerate um, by Nicole Forsgren et al. It's, it's a marvelous uh, piece of work. And something else everyone should read is The Goal by Eliyahu Goldratt. Because <laughs> um, it's, it's really where those primitives were first, uh, or I suppose you could go all the way back to the Toyota manufacturing system stuff. But uh, certainly, I think in, in, in an industrial or, or modern context, um, the goal expresses it super well. And I agree with you. I think that those basic ideas of lean, if we could put them in, in that broad category, are not spoken about enough. And, and maybe that's what I'm getting at in the sense that are we not creating theater in just the same way as the change approval boards, the cabs, are theater, right? It's just nonsense that... 15 people who don't know each other's applications are going to somehow magically know what the collision chance is or a joint change failure rate is going to be. It's just crazy. It's theater. How do we avoid making the market will eventually take care of those because, you know, business cycles are moving way faster than they did 10 or 20 years ago when Mark and I were young. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's moving at a pace now that if you continue to go at a glacial rate, you better hope you have a well-protected monopoly that the government is backstopping you on wherever you are in the world, <laughs> or someone's going to come and eat your lunch. Um, you know, the, the other thing that I think true about this is that at, at Amazon, we had the expression that, you know, 
innovation happens because it needs to, not just because you want it to. And so like necessity is the mother of innovation and getting better at things. When your back's against the wall and you really have to go faster because you think your livelihood or your company or your team or you know your home is at risk, you will come up with new and novel ways and you'll break the rules if necessary and you'll push and you'll motivate and you'll advocate to get things done. If, if you're comfortable and your organization is still kind of on the lefter side of the, the Westrum model, maybe you're a bit pathological, a bit bureaucratic, you know, but not on that generative side, then what, what's the upside for you of really trying to launch a mission? Um, I'll, I'll put a plug in for a guy named Brian Kite, who came and talked to us at a pivotal kickoff earlier in the year. He's a he does a lot of work with the U.S. college football teams. That's the the pointy football for uh, Justin's uh, uh, Thank you. benefit. I, I spent long enough in the U.K. that I know what real football is, but the, this is this is American football. And and Brian talks about it in terms of like he's an executive kind of coach mentor guy, and if you should follow him on Twitter because he's he's got really good clean sound advice that is not buzzwordy or or hand wavy and. He talks a lot about how do you avoid being on this mountain of average? And he says like 80% of people will just live on this mountain of average, you know, the bell curve of life and, and they're comfortable there. But what happens is the curve moves and they fall off the back of the curve and they find themselves irrelevant in whatever walk of life they're in. And so, you know, even as organizations, I think, I think there's a lot of organizations who are kind of coasting along because they don't really feel the, the real urgent burning pressure yet to do. They, the other thing I see a lot of is constant turnover at the top. If you go look at a place like Amazon Web Services, the leadership has all been together there for double digit years. In fact, right through Amazon as a company. And, and that's in stark contrast to a lot of the companies I go in and talk to where it's like, oh yeah, you know, the CIO just came in last week and you know, he's been the, or she's been the fourth one in five years and you know, and there's just a constant restarting of strategy, and then you know all the all the chairs turn and, and new people come in and old people leave, and it's just constant turmoil. And it seems like the bigger and more complex the organization, the more this is a thing. Yeah, the yeah. revolving wow. door of executives that's that's never going to help in terms of trying to create the stability that you need to actually push through change with. I mean, Indeed. what have you seen, Justin? I think that large organizations often experience this change of strategy which which sean spoke about and um, that can be really really destructive you know people need some time to see delivery from what they're working on particularly if they're builders right if they're engineers they want to build something and see it out there in the market and if there's a lot of strategy change you know, like fundamental strategy change which then typically drives organizational change because large organizations think like that right it's the organizational silos and the restructuring of the silos that will obviously create better strategy, which we of course know not to be true. But um, a lot of that strategic change with with uh, turnover at the top, exactly as Sean says, I think is has um, has demoralized many teams. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking, um, just as we come to the end, I was thinking about some some things that people could do tomorrow. And some of the notes that I wrote down, Sean, were, and this has been a fantastic uh, chat, really, really has, mm -hmm. you know, help your leaders learn about technology. 
So if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you probably know and are interested in technology to, to, to begin with. But maybe some of your leaders, to Sean's point, don't know the technology business. So how could we help them? I think point two is read Accelerate. Uh, it's a great piece of work. It really is. And uh, you should definitely read that. Um, and I, I really liked, um, and I've, um, I've heard it from him too, I really liked the, the points you raised around from, from James on how much time do you spend below the value line? And I think if most of us go and look in our businesses, we spend a lot of time doing things and creating processes such as cabs uh, that are below the value line to enable our uh, engineers to spend a little bit of time above the value line. And so the question is, you know, understanding how much time you spend below the value line and what you can do to, to, um, to enable your team to spend more time above it. Um, so those are three really, really um, cool things that, that I got out of this. Thanks, Sean. This has been awesome. Well, thank, yeah, thanks for having me, guys. This has been a great chat. Yeah, no, it, it's been wonderful. And I, I'll, I'll throw in one other thing that I think has been, you know, if I could take away one key thing in addition to the things that Justin said, make sure you have a real conversation with the business if you're from the technology side about things that are going to be impactful and that they're going to understand you know whether it's the four metrics that we that we discussed here today out of the book accelerate or or some other metrics that you can agree upon you're getting away from the things that are just that are kind of meaningless to business leaders they don't care about lines of code check-ins and all these other things but if you could really talk about things that are deliverable from a technology standpoint that have true impact and meaning from a business point of view, I think you'll have much more success in actually educating a lot of business leaders about mm. the, the, the importance of understanding the, you know, how you make the sausage, essentially, how you do technology. Because so I think that is as key of a skill now as a business leader as understanding cash flow, uh, understanding uh, your recruiting processes, understanding your product processes, it's going to be one of those key skills that you're going to need to know as a leader in 21st century large corporations. So, uh, yeah. really appreciate yeah, right it. Right on. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think Mark, you hit it on the, on the head. You're bang on the money, and kind of to Justin's point of how do we avoid this becoming theater? If your business are fully bought into an agile transformation and they get the their budgeting cycles might have to shorten and you're going to have to fund product teams to last for the full lifetime of the product and not just have these start stop projects anymore because the way you're building software is different. If, the, if they're bought in, that stuff will be easy. But if they've never heard of Agile and it's just the thing you're doing in technology, it's going to be an uphill struggle every day. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So on that note, thank you, Sean. That was awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, really appreciate uh, you having me on. No, this has been awesome, and uh, yeah, I, I still feel personally attacked by the whole Rolodex and ageism thing, but uh, I, I will come back on, on the future podcast and defend my what seemingly are antiquated ways of doing business, but uh, I, I rest assured I'm young at heart, much like we all are yes. on today's podcast. <laughs> yes. we, are, we are young at heart. And, we are uh, indeed and, young at heart. <laughs> and uh, the, happy 4th of July. Believe, I believe it was Shakespeare. I believe it was Shakespeare who said, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. <laughs> yeah. uh, particularly if you use ad, particularly if you use ITIL processes, I think that was that, <laughs> yeah. that, that was actually missed from the original text back in uh, Shakespeare's time. So uh, <laughs> thank you, everyone. It's been a wonderful uh, 
podcast episode as usual and uh, look forward to future episodes. Thank you, Sean. And thank you, my trusty colleague and co-host, Justin. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heretics podcast today. We hope you listen to another one really soon. Please accept our apologies for any technical issues and sound quality. We promise we're getting better, and we hope you are too. See you soon.